It's always a privilege to have an opportunity to speak in this church, but it's also a kind of an intimidating thing because we hear such a good word here, so you'll all have to give me some grace. It just so happens that that's the title of my message tonight. I always like to have a little joke before, and uh, I'm not a very good joke teller, so sometimes I have to read them. Uh, there was this family that was having gathered for Christmas dinner, and um, they asked a four-year-old, one of the four-year-olds, to say the grace, say the prayer. And so the family members bowed their heads in expectation, and he began the prayer, thanking God for all of his friends, naming them one by one. He thanked God for mommy and daddy and brother and sister and grandma and grandpa and all his aunts and uncles also by name. Then he began to thank God for the food, and he gave thanks for the turkey, the dressing, the fruit salad, the cranberry sauce, the pies, the cakes, even the Cool Whip. And then he paused, and everybody waited and waited. After a long silence, the young fellow looked up to his mother and asked, If I thank God for the broccoli, won't he know I'm lying? Okay. Well, I have 12 pages of notes, so... <laughs> Miss Becky said, oh. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll get done on time. Um, last week, Pastor was uh, speaking, and he's talking about grace. Just part of his message, it, it, the focus wasn't grace, but he, he referred to grace several times. And so... Uh, I wanted to give this message on grace, and we want to look at uh, our, the text for this message is Ephesians 2 and verse 8. So if you look at Ephesians 2 and verse 8, this Bible has very small print, so bear with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And I think we all recognize that every gift that we have comes from the Father. And grace is a, it's a powerful word, and I think sometimes we don't really recognize the power in the word. There are 128 references in, to grace in the, in, the, in the New Testament, but there are only 32 in the Old Testament. And we'll get to the reason for that in just a minute, but almost every one of the epistles start with a call for grace. In my opinion, grace is probably the most overused and under-understood word in the Bible. And when we really begin to get our mind around it, it's truly amazing what this grace is. We all know the hymn, Amazing Grace, and it's a beautiful hymn, and, and the words are beautiful and all that, but it doesn't begin to describe how amazing grace really is. Yeah. When I began to study this grace and started to comprehend the enormity of it, and it is enormous, I decided to look up every description that I could find of the word, those of you who have heard me speak before know I like definitions because a lot of times we use these words all the time, but we don't really know what they mean. So here are just some of what I found. 
from the Strong's, they, they used benefit, gift, joy, liberality, pleasure, unmerited favor. That's probably the most used definition that I've heard in my life. From the Nelson Bible Dictionary, it's favor or kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it. That applies to all of us, doesn't it? We get this grace and none of us deserve it. Um, from the American Heritage Dictionary, mercy, clemency, favor rendered by one who need not do so. Immunity or reprieve, divine love or protection, the state of being protected or sanctified by God, and excellence or power granted by God. And I found many more definitions or synonyms or whatever you want to call it for grace, but I think these should suffice to help us to begin to understand what it is. I started with a description of grace that we've all heard many times, and it's the acronym for grace, which goes God's riches at Christ's expense. We've all heard that before, and it's a nice, nice definition, but it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what grace really is. It's far too simplistic for that. There is an important point here, though, and that is that while grace to us is free, it's not really free. God gave His only begotten Son in order that we can receive grace. John 3.16 really says it, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's an awful price. Any of us that have children, you know, I shudder to think of me ever willfully giving one of my sons to suffer and die and go through all the humiliation and torment and everything that Jesus went through to purchase this grace that we receive. And God paid that price too because He loved us. He loves you and me. Jesus paid an awful price too. You remember when Jesus was in the garden seeking his father that this cup might pass from him. He sweat great drops of blood because he was in agony over what he was going to endure. Jesus knew at that time exactly what he would go through. I believe that when he was in the garden and he was pleading with his father or seeking his father that the cup might pass. I believe that he had a vision, he had a revelation of everything that he was going to go through. He received that revelation and understood it, and yet he paid that price for us. It's an awful price. He also paid it not only for us because he loved us, but because he was willing to be obedient to his Father's will. Right. Obedience is valued above sacrifice by God. So that all the grace that we receive comes to us through Jesus Christ. Let's look at John chapter 1. Verse 
verse 14. I'm losing all my papers. Guess I have too many then. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we could say that Jesus is love and truth. Um, let's look for a minute at uh, Luke 15. And we've all heard this story or read this story or heard it preached many, many times. Starting with verse 11. And this is the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a, to a country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all there, arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and ran to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and, and, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. That prodigal son is all of us, isn't he? We've all been maybe not exactly like that uh, story, the times that we have fallen short and been selfish and lived for our own ends and haven't served God. And that father had compassion for his son and welcomed him back with open arms. And our father does that for us too. And like I said, we've all heard this story many times, but I sometimes think that because its setting is in a different culture in a different time from what we live in, we don't really appreciate the magnitude of it. So, I have, a, I have a story here that's a similar story that uh, 
I found in a book by Philip Yancey. And it's a little lengthy, but I think it's worthwhile, so bear with me. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned and tend to overact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They get around her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks at the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She had visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men will pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about her folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night she lies awake listening for footsteps. All of a sudden her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she is hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs up tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she has piled on top of her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. Of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom all at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog eats better back home than I do. Now she's sobbing. And she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls. Three straight connections with the answering machine. 
She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If, if you're not there, well, uh, I guess I'll just stay on the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are at home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says these words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement worn smooth by thousands of tires. And the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. Every so often a billboard, a sign, posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all the time we have here, 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a combat, compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice, or even if they'll be there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousands of scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stand a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great-aunts, uncles, and cousins, and a grandmother and great-grandmother-to-be. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She sta stares out through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you. Here's a father demonstrating on a small scale the grace that we receive from our loving father. A demonstration of forgiveness and acceptance that can only be understood in one way. She is his child. And there's nothing, nothing she can do that would make her father love her any less. This father has been waiting, aching for the opportunity to receive his child back to himself and shower her with all the love and benefits that flow from being connected to the family. Does she deserve such love and forgiveness? Some would say no, but it really has nothing to do with what she deserves. She is his child. We're all in a similar position when it comes to receiving the grace of God. Just as the love and forgiveness for this girl flowed from her birthright and her relationship with a loving father. 
So the grace of God flows to us as a result of our birthright and relationship from having accepted Jesus as our Savior. The Word says in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And verse 8.17 says, And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus. And since we're joint heirs with Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares that we are the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. That means that we have right standing with God. We're justified by our relationship with Jesus. It's because of this relationship that God has accepted us into his family and made his, the abundance of his grace available to us. Right. However, just like the young girl in our story or the prodigal son that Jesus talked about, we must be willing to put ourselves in a position to receive that grace. In the story of the young girl, the grace and forgiveness of her father was there all along. But she had separated herself from her father and chosen to go her own way. She had to make a choice to return to her father and seek a return to fellowship with him. The prodigal son did not deserve that forgiveness. He had chosen the sin life that had almost consumed him. Because of those choices, he returned with the thought that he would not return to a position of sonship, but that he would return to a position of a servant. Let's look at Romans 5.20. It says, Am I right here? Yeah. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even, the great, even so grace might reign through righteous, righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The word says here that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And you know, often we wonder about, you know, have we been so bad that we can't be forgiven? Have we done so many evil things that God would never receive us again? And the, the parable of the prodigal son is there as a as a a, a marker for us that we can always know that there's a way back to God for us. The young girl had to make a, a choice to return to her father and seek a return to fellowship with him. And the prodigal son is the same thing. The word says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Does that mean that we have a license to sin? We can just go sin all we want to and do all that we want to and then go back and uh, repent and God will receive us back? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. We don't have a license to sin, but we do have the ability to repent and go back to God and be forgiven. 1 John 1 9 says, if we, if we, if we repent for our sins and seek God, He'll receive us back and forgive us for, of all unrighteousness. While it's true that we will be forgiven, there's something that happens when we sin that makes it difficult for us to do that. And just like the young girl in the, in the story that I read, 
once she had lived that life of wantonness and rebellion from her family, it became very difficult for her, even when she got in trouble, to make herself seek redemption. Sin makes cowards of us all. It makes us fear going to the Father. But the beautiful part of it is that when we do that, when we make a choice to go to the Father and repent and seek His forgiveness, He's always there. He's always waiting for us to do that. If we don't do that, sin will take us where we don't want to go. It will take us on a downward spiral, like the description of the young girl's life, uh, when she first went to the big city and everything was great and she ordered room service and had all that she wanted and all that. But there's a spiral that takes place with sin that will take you down and down and down and down, unless you make the choice to seek the Father and seek repentance. So, you know, this grace that we're talking about, and this, this message here doesn't begin to describe the enormity of grace, but maybe it's, it's enough to make you think about how grace is free and it's available to everybody. And that grace is available to people whether they're saved or they're unsaved. If they're unsaved, it's a really a simple thing to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and believe it in your heart, and you're saved. It's really a simple process. And if you are saved, it's still a simple process. You just seek repentance, and you seek the Lord, and you're forgiven. And the Father is patiently waiting to receive us all to Himself, saved and unsaved. His love, His grace, His mercy is universal. It's available to every single one of us. Grace is all those things, all those descriptions that are read to you and so much more. It's unfathomable. Most of us can't begin to comprehend the depth, the length, the width, the height of the grace that God has for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I hope this helps you. Father, I want to thank you for this.